All right, well, good morning, and let's go ahead for the final time and turn our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We have arrived to the final few verses of 1 Timothy, and ironically, as Paul finishes the letter, here is what he's going to want Timothy to do. He's going to have Timothy fix his eyes on eternity, which means this. He ends the letter by talking about that which has no end. And there's another author named Paul. This one is named Paul Tripp. He wrote a book years ago called Forever. And in the book, he coined a phrase that still sticks with me to this day. And I'm going to pass that phrase to you. And the phrase is eternity amnesia. That we can suffer from eternity amnesia. Because we've been created with forever in our hearts. Everyone has but we can find ourselves abandoning the reality of that eternity in our day-to-day lives in the way that we think about and we approach things. We suffer from eternity amnesia. And if you think about this with me, our vision of the future shapes the commitments we make in the present. Um, what's true of all of us in this room is that you care about where you are five years from now. You have a vision of your life five years from now, ten years from now. If you're raising children, you, you care about where they're at five years from now and care about what they care about. And it impacts the way that you approach your life, as it should. There's no problem with that. Um, The fact that your interest in the future impacts your decisions in the present. Your interest in the future impacts your decisions in the present. So if you were signed up to run the New York City Marathon this November, you'd commit to train well now. Uh, If you wanted to go to an Ivy League, you wanted to go to Yale someday in the future, you'll study well now. If you want your kids to grow up to be kind and smart and successful and to support you when you're older, you will parent well now. You want to play professional soccer someday? You want to play in the WNBA someday? You will practice hard now. You want to be a senior director at your company with a corner office on Fifth Ave? You're going to work well now. Future interests fuel current commitments. It's true for all of us. And this is innately done, so the issue is not that we don't look to the future. Here's the issue with eternity amnesia that it presents for us. It's not that we don't look into the future, it's that we don't look far enough into the future. Uh, It's Tripp writes, and I think we have this quote up on the screen in the book Forever. He says, if this is all the life we have, then the name of the game is this. Experience, possess, and accomplish everything we can right here, right now, because this is all there is. If this quote um, is true of you, whether or not you'd be willing to admit it, or you know that you're drawn into, think this way, immersed in this suburban culture that we're in, what we're saying is that it's not that your ambitions are too big, but they are actually too small. You're not seeing life in light of eternity. Uh, So as we end this book today, we end this letter of 1 Timothy, we will fix our eyes and our minds on a life with no end. And with that, we're going to go to 1 Timothy 6. We're picking it up at verse 17, and we're taking it to the end of the letter. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future 
so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Future interests fuel current commitments. And here's how we're going to finish the series. When we live in light of eternity, here are five current um, present day commitments that we can all share. For all the differences we have, here are five current day commitments we could have if we have a shared interest in the future. Five commitments starting with number one, resist arrogance. Uh, I admit that when I read 1 Timothy, began to study it more, I think the way that Paul finished verses 15 and 16 in the passage we saw last week would have been a great ending to the letter. Do you remember the ending of 15 and 16? You can peek down at your Bibles if you don't. He, he ends with this kind of uh, doxology. It's an eruption of praise, an exaltation towards God. And he ends verse 16 with, Amen. Uh, so some commentators think that Paul actually meant to finish with that. But as we often do, we don't write letters anymore, but maybe emails, text messages. He had a P.S. about the topic of money and wealth that he forgot about when he was talking about money and wealth earlier in the chapter. And certainly that's possible, but I don't think it's likely. Um, for one, Paul intersperses his doxologies all throughout his letters, no matter where it is. He's always breaking out into this kind of doxology, beginning of the letter, uh, middle of the letter, and towards the end. We've seen three to four in First Timothy alone. Plus, when he talked about the love for money earlier that we saw a few weeks ago, he was talking about it in context of the false teachers. The false teachers in the church, the leaders, the elders, the preachers, were, had, a, had a love for money that was driving their interests, that was fueling their false teaching. So he was warning the church about them. Now he's instructing Timothy to talk to the whole church about wealth. So before he's talking specifically false teachers, now this is to the entire congregation. Um, we recall that this church is in the city of Ephesus. Um, historians universally agree that Ephesus was one of, if not the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire in the first century. It was the financial hub, the trading hub. It was a port city. So it is reasonable to think that many, maybe most, of the members of this church that Timothy is now overseeing um, were wealthy. That they came to faith in Jesus Christ as wealthy people in first century standards. So notice, in this ending, Paul is not saying that being rich is a problem. Don't tell the rich uh, that it's a problem to be rich. That's never what he says in the Bible. He's not calling it out in a negative way, but he's giving a very careful reminder to the wealthy who are going to face temptations that non-wealthy people won't face as intensely. And at the top of the list of the warning is arrogance. Resist arrogance. Uh, the ESV, as we read, uses a word that we don't see very much in our day today, the word haughty. The literal meaning of haughty is to think exalted thoughts of self. Resist thinking exalted thoughts of yourself. Because while we might not use that word anymore, we know full well what that meaning means. That just the wealthier somebody is, the more money somebody has, the more prone they are to see themselves as more worthy and superior to other people. And when you view yourself and you view others on this kind of worldly standard of riches and wealth, 
And you got some that are up here, some that are here, some kind of more down here, some you know, really far down there. It impacts the way we see them. It impacts the way we view ourselves when we're in their presence. We equate worth with value. But when you live in light of eternity, when, when, when you go further into the future, when you don't suffer from eternity amnesia, you see that people are valuable in that they are made in the image of God, not in their net worth. This is such a huge game changer in your life. That when you see other people, you say, my first thing I think about when I see them is that they are image bearers. If you think that first, watch what that does in your life. Because when you see people first as a fellow image bearer, you are naturally going to be less likely to see yourself as superior to them if you're more wealthy than them. Or vice versa. Uh, earlier in chapter 6, Paul said, Naked I came into this world, and naked I will leave, like everyone else. I probably wouldn't say this out loud to people because it would be awkward. But when you see somebody said, Naked I will leave this world. Naked I came, naked I leave, and so will you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> and since that is true, I will commit now, today, to resist the mindset of arrogance that if left unchecked, it breeds contempt towards other people. It eliminates compassion for other people. So commitment number one then leads to commitment number two that Paul gives in this passage. To flee idolatry. When eternity is in mind, you will flee idolatry. Uh, this is really interesting to me because the baseline point in verse 17 is clear. If your Bibles are open, you can look back down. Uh, the, the, the point is clear. You are to set your hope on God and not on money. Why? Because money is fleeting and God is not. Pretty simple point. Not easy, but simple. But look at how Paul describes the God whom we should set our hope on. Again, if your Bibles are open, look at the end of verse 17. He who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't miss this. Here's what Paul is saying. God has designed you to enjoy the things he provides you with. He has designed you to enjoy the things he provides you with. Okay, so this is not a call to self-denial in the sense that we should never enjoy the things of this world, including wealth and the things that wealth might provide if we're actually going to put our hope in God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we are free to, hear me, even called to enjoy the good gifts that God gives you. So flee the mindset that God is only happy, happy with me if I'm miserable in this world. And if I find myself enjoying the things in this world, God must not be happy with that. I either have to be miserable in the world and good with God, or happy in the world and not good with God. We can slip into that mindset of, of thinking that he's calling for self-denial. But that's not what's happening here. All right, so before you get out your phone while I'm preaching and you cancel your vacation for the summer and tell your kids at lunch today, trip is over, see what Paul is saying. You are free to enjoy the gift, but you make sure that your hope is in the giver. You are free to enjoy the gift, but careful, make sure your hope is in the giver. Flee idolatry. Um, the sin of idolatry is taking something given as a gift and treating it like a god. 
I think that's the best, for me, clearest definition of idolatry. An idol is taking something that was given as a gift and then treating it as a god. Um, uh, as Keller puts in the book Counterfeit Gods, which the men's group is going to be studying this summer, it's taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing, which then in turn makes it into a bad thing. You see it? It's taking a good thing, making it an ultimate thing, which then in turn makes it a bad thing. And there's a lot of false idols that we can fall into that trap. But money, and especially wealth, and materialism is probably at the top of the list. That money is a gift to be enjoyed that can really easily turn into a god to be worshipped. It's why 15% of everything Jesus talked about in the Gospels, 15% had to do with money. Including chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. He says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Look, you cannot serve both God and money. You see, in this world, you can have multiple gifts, but only one God. And if you want to know who or what your God is, It is that person or thing that everything else will be sacrificed for when push comes to the shove. That person or thing in your life that when push comes to shove, everything else will be sacrificed for. You might not call it a God, but that's your God. And as you look into the future, if you stop with your life in this world, then the motivation is experience, possess, and accomplish. Experience, possess, and accomplish. And wake up tomorrow and experience and possess and accomplish. And money is the currency for all of it. But if you keep going, if you keep looking further, if you live in light of eternity, you will loosen your grip on wealth. And be able to enjoy it as a gift, not worship it as a God. Uh, Many of you know this quote by C.S. Lewis, who puts it concisely and memorably. He writes this, Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Commitment number two. Flee idolatry, which leads now to number three. Live generously. Third commitment we have in the current day with future interests in mind. Live generously. Okay, so let's talk about wealth. When we think about wealth, especially in our context, uh, we often think about the celebrities. You think about the athletes who just signed a $100 million contract. You think about the corporate executives. And, And part of this, if we're honest, can be this kind of defense mechanism that as Christians, nobody wants to be known as wealthy. So we just think of ourselves you know, compare ourselves to somebody who's just a little bit wealthier than us. I'm not rich. They're rich. And we go top of the food chain, so to speak. Well, by worldly standards, let's just say this. Um, If you own a home, if you don't have to worry about food or how to feed your family this week, if that's not top of your mind, how am I going to feed my family this week? If you have a full wardrobe to select from, I hate to break it to you. You're rich. 
And before you think, dang it, I'm rich, that's okay. Because in the Bible, wealth is never the problem. In fact, wealth is celebrated all throughout Scripture. But it is a responsibility. Here's what we need to affirm, just especially in our context, okay? Um, To be rich is not a sin to be repented of. It is a responsibility to be stewarded. To be rich is not a sin to be repented of, but it is a responsibility to be stewarded. And when living in light of eternity, we commit to live generously. Okay, look down at verse 18. Notice Paul's first charge here has nothing to do with money. He says they are to do good. And then he uses a play on words, to be rich in good works. You don't have to be rich to be rich in good works. And then, yes, to be generous and ready to share as God will allow which certainly in context includes money, but it's not exclusive to money. You see, within the kingdom of God, generosity is first about a way of life before it's about money to be given. And the people of God aim to be generous in small, often overlooked daily tasks throughout the day. Every single day, you can wake up with the opportunity to be generous with your life. You can let someone else have the closer parking space, even at the Garden State Plaza. You can mow your neighbor's lawn in addition to your own and take that hour. You can let someone else have seconds instead of you at dinner. Student athletes, you can look to get your teammates involved rather than just trying to get your own stats. Generosity is an approach to life that manifests itself in many ways. That the people of God get to wake up thinking of ways you can be generous. It's such an awesome way to live. Paul writes about it in Romans 12. He calls it this. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Like, make it a competition. How generous can I be today? And then so when we do start to disciple our kids about, uh, or when we do disciple our kids about generosity as a way of life, then when the time does come as they grow older, to teach them about financial generosity and financial stewardship, it won't be such a foreign concept to them. It will be merely an added element to the way of life they've been learning since they were young. That we live generously in this house because God is generous towards us. And he richly provides us with all we need, as Paul said. So generosity is not only about money. But let's be honest. It will be made evident by how generous we are with our money. Whether or not we understand generosity as a way of life will be made evident by how generous we are with our money. Because money is that thing that is most difficult to part with. Maybe you wouldn't say this, but maybe you think this. You can take my time. You can have my time. But don't touch my money. So I'm speaking now to believers. If you profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ, do you know what the best indicator is to see if you view wealth as a gift and not a God. Do you want to know, do I really see wealth as a gift and not a God? How do you know? Here's top of the list. How easy it is to give it away. To give. And at the heart of hearts, we can ask ourselves the question, or if you're married, you you as a married couple uh, can ask yourselves this question. How do we think about financial giving 
and financial generosity. I think it comes down to two questions. Everyone's going to fall himself, find themselves under the category of two questions. It's going to be one or the other. Is the guiding question for your life, how much do I have to give away? And then make your decisions accordingly. Or is it, how much can I give away? And then make your decisions accordingly. For all of us, I think it's safe to say, it's going to be one question or the other. And the encouragement for us to taste and see the freedom and the power of living generously. Uh, Randy Alcorn, who's an author, and he wrote a little book called The Treasure Principle. It's maybe 100, 120 pages. And he writes this. He said, giving is the only antidote to materialism. Uh, Are you nervous about materialism for you, for the lives of your kids? Again, I don't have to keep hammering the point, but we're in the suburbs, man. Like, materialism is the name of the game. Experience, uh, possess, and accomplish. What's the only antidote to falling into the trap of materialism? Giving. It's the key that unlocks the shackles on our wrists. When we give generously, we're declaring that I'm not defined by how much I have. I'm driven by how much I can give. You know, Randy Alcorn, he wrote another book that maybe uh, you know him for. He's more well known for this book. And it's called Heaven. It's the name of the book, called Heaven. And even in the title of these two books, we see the connection between heaven and the treasure principle. That when we live in light of eternity, when you do not suffer from eternity amnesia, we affirm that heaven, not earth, is my home. So if you store up treasure for your stuff on earth, if you're driven by experience, possess, and accomplish here, it will prove to be a bad investment. You will find someday, that was a bad investment. But if you invest in the kingdom of God, you show that, as Paul writes, you are taking hold of that which is truly life. Live generously. That's number three. We got two commitments left. Commitment number four, guard the deposit. Again, Bible's open. Look down at verse 20, second to last verse. We see yet another reminder that we've seen throughout this letter that this is a real letter written by a real person to a real person. And the reminder is seen in a single letter. Do you see it? It's the letter O. Paul writes his final sentence, O Timothy. Hear me, you don't write O to someone you don't care a lot about. You don't write O to a casual acquaintance at work. You write, oh, to someone whom the affections run deep for. Oh, shows the commitment Paul's had to disciple young Timothy over a couple of decades in gospel ministry and in missions work. Oh, shows the angst for his hopes for Timothy that will long last after Paul is dead and gone. Oh, is the passionate desire that an older believer has for a younger believer in the faith to stay the course and not waver. Oh, Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. You know what they say about last words? Last words are lasting words. One of the many reasons I love preaching through the books of the Bible is that because when we come to the end on a week like this, when you come to an end of a book in a series, we get to see, and more than that, we get to feel last words that are indeed lasting words. Can I ask you a question? What do you think Timothy was thinking about one hour after he wrote this letter? 
What do you think about when he was uh, eating dinner that night? What do you think the church was thinking about the next day after Timothy stood up and read this letter to the whole church? I bet you he remembered this line. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. There was no central banking system in the first century Roman Empire that I'm aware of. There was no secure place in society that you can entrust your most valuable belongings when you went away on a trip. So what did you have to do? You're about to go away. You can't take what's most valuable with you. What do you do with it? You got to find someone whom you trust. You got to find someone to entrust that to, that they would care for it, that they would, if necessary, guard it, not let it disappear, not let it go to waste. So what is the deposit that was entrusted to Timothy? It is the same deposit entrusted to all who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Here it is. The deposit is the gospel doctrines of the faith that shape the gospel culture of the church. The deposit given to Timothy are the gospel doctrines of the faith that shape the gospel culture of the church. For it is the gospel that reveals the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, just as there's only one God, so too this one God has revealed a single way for people whose lives and souls have been fractured by sin and brokenness to be restored. One God has provided one way for people to be restored back to him. And before we ask, why would he only make it one way? We should be asking, how could he make any way? But he did make a way. And it's through the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the singularly most valuable thing that every believer possesses. What's the most valuable thing you own in your life? It doesn't hold the candle to the truth of the gospel that's been entrusted to you. It is the singularly most valuable thing that this church possesses, Grace Church. Of all our assets, all our people, all our membership, none of it is as valuable as the gospel. Because it is the eternally impactful truth that connects this world to the next. When we see life in view of eternity, nothing comes close to the value of the gospel. And the gospel is not God saying, all right, guys, here's what you got to do in order to be saved. The gospel says, this is what I've done for you in order to be saved. The gospel says that God, through the perfect life and atoning death and bodily resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, rescues all people from the wrath of God and brings them into peace with God by faith with a promise of the full restoration of his creative order forever, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's been entrusted to you. That the best gift that you can ever get from the giver is himself. And this gift is offered, and the call in your life is to receive it. Not earn it, receive it. You see, we are all responsible for receiving this gift we are all responsible for submitting ourselves unto him, or else we will all be held responsible for rejecting that gift.
and living for ourselves, not for him. So if you have not explicitly responded to the gospel in faith, this is the call in your life. That is the foundational commitment to make in light, in light of eternity. And for those in this room who have made that commitment, do you know that you are now a trustee in God's kingdom? Guarding the truth of the gospel, defending against error that will erode it, keeping it secure not only for your own heart but for your church and for the generations that will come behind you. I think this is why Paul wrote, O Timothy, before this commitment. Because the church is only as effective as its ability to pass this truth of the gospel, to pass this deposit to the generations behind us. I I know it's a Sunday in June and we're all looking forward to summer, but can I just ask you for a moment, do you understand and grasp the beautiful weight of this call in your life? To participate in the story that guards the gospel for generations that don't even exist yet. Okay, so over the past two years at Grace Church, I, I've lost count, but I think we're somewhere over 20 babies have been born at Grace Church over the last two years. You combine that with the other children that we have in our hallways and downstairs on a week-to-week basis, there are, again, at last count, somewhere between 175 and 200 kids under fifth grade that call Grace Church their home church. 20 to 25 years from now, let's talk 2045. 2050, what will they know? What will they care most about in this world? What will those 20 babies be willing to die for? What will they sacrifice their lives for when they're graduating high school and they're entering the workforce and they're going to college and grad school and they're getting married and they're starting to have children of their own? How will they see themselves? How will they see others? Do you understand your part in the story of the answers to those questions? Guard the deposit entrusted to you. When you live in the light of eternity, you see that the most impactful thing you will participate in this world might not be wrapped up in what you do, but who you raise whether it be children in your home or children in this church, may we never view our ministries here as mere childcare. May we never view what the men and women are doing down the hall right now and doing downstairs as babysitting. Our children's ministry is the front lines of disciple-making ministry at Grace Church. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. And that leads to our final commitment. Commitment number five. Final verse, the commitment is walk in grace. This is not recognizable in the ESV, but Paul throws a curveball in the final phrase, grace be with you. Because you see, this letter was written to Timothy. The final charge we just read was given to Timothy, oh Timothy. But then this final line, the you is a plural you, curveball. Grace be with you all. All right, if we lived about five hours south of here, it'd be grace be with y'all. You see, Paul knows this letter was written to Timothy, but it was meant for the whole church. 
And beyond that, the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul knew this letter was meant for the whole church in all times. And all of these commitments are couched in a blessing. Grace be with you. His grace knows no bounds. I'll close with this. I just finished Colin Hansen's biography of Tim Keller a couple weeks ago. Uh, the biography came out earlier this year. I've had it for a while. Hadn't read it. And then last month, as many of you know, Tim Keller passed away. I decided to move it to the top of the reading list. By the end of the book, I realized I was far more shaped and formed in theology and ministry than I even realized by Tim Keller. Here's the final line of Hansen's book. He says, quote, Over the course of three years of interviews with Tim Keller for this book, one theme stood out above all. Tim never stopped pushing for a deeper experience of God's grace. Grace Church, when you live in light of eternity, you push deeper into grace. For grace frees us from carrying the burden of having to convince ourselves that we are good enough. Grace frees us from being overwhelmed with the commitments that we are to make here and now because grace will be with us all. Grace is fuel. Grace is security. Grace is peace. And grace is forever. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the commitment that you have called us to, knowing that you do not ask us to commit anything that we're not able to. That with the power of your Spirit within us, Lord, we can walk in these ways. And we know that all of these commandments are couched in a blessing. That your grace is with us. It surrounds us. It comes alongside us. It hovers over us. It is the ground beneath us. And so I pray, Lord, that as we live in this world, that we would enjoy the gifts that you provide us, but that our hope would be in you, the giver. That we would live with eternity in mind and allow our lives to then uh, fall into place accordingly, Lord. Be with us. Let us be a shining light in this community you have placed us in. Let it be all for your glory. In your name, in your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together and respond in singing before we take the Lord's Supper.